Welcome to What's Up with Betsy Johnson, the podcast from a longtime Oregon legislator and keen political observer discussing what is right and wrong with government, politics, and public policy. Well, Betsy, uh, we, it seems to be a, one of the continuing themes of our newly revamped show, and that would be Ballot Measure 110. This was a ballot measure passed by Oregon voters that basically legalized almost every drug you can think of. Um, you're trying to make it not so onerous. How is that effort going and what are you doing? Well, the effort is going well. So we're doing two things. Um, first of all, it's an interesting group. It's got some very progressive folks. It's got law enforcement. It's got former legislators. Um, and uh, it's got skilled lobbyists on both the R and the D side pulled together to actually work this effort. And so the first plan is to provide the legislature with some model legislation that they could choose to adopt that would functionally correct many of the problems with ballot measure 110. But for people that aren't familiar with 110, let's jump back in history just a little bit. Oregon has become a petri dish for national ideas. And this effort to legalize, functionally legalize dangerous drugs in Oregon was a national effort funded in no small measure by the Zuckerbergs. And Mr. Soros, as best we can tell, they spent a ton of money and portrayed this ballot measure that was up for consideration by the voters, portrayed the ballot measure as treatment versus criminal punishment. You know, should you go to the joint for a joint? Well, first of all, the premise is wrong. Our prisons are not packed with convicted drug dealers. In fact, nobody basically goes to jail for drug possession. Uh, and so um, the amount of money that was spent, I think, on a fraudulently advertised ballot measure was enough to propel it to a wide margin of passage. Once it was passed and people began to equate the proliferation of drug use and abuse on our streets, in uh, Portland especially, and correlated that to accelerated mental health problems, accelerated homelessness. Uh, the public has has uh, lost their uh, their thrill for ballot measure 110. Many favor complete repeal. And uh, now we're trotting out stories from real people in Portland who are unhappy with the legalization of hard drugs. Um, Nobody should be surprised that government did not have the right processes in place and that legalizing hard drugs for a population struggling with homelessness um, and then pile on top of that COVID and job and school losses and political turmoil was a very, very bad mix. And so, um, plus all of the political stories, because now um, cannabis is regulated by our OLCC and cannabis is out of control. So bottom line is that we've got the public very much wanting to do something different with ballot measure 110. And our group is giving them a pathway to do it. So let me go back to the basic framework and then I'll let you ask some questions. The basic framework is to come up with the legal research and the drafting, the drafting based on conversations with the recovery community, with downtown merchants, with civic leaders, with law enforcement, uh, to come up with ideas that should be included in legislation, ask the legislature to pass this in the special session in 2024, that would be in February of 2024, and if they are unwilling or unable 
we are simultaneously raising enough money to be able to take the question of repeal or reform to the to the ballot and explain more carefully with enough money behind us to Oregonians just what the pernicious effects of legalizing these drugs were. What do the uh, proponents of this ballot measure say, if anything? Is there anybody that's in favor of keeping this exactly as it is and think that it's a good thing? Oh, God, yes. Uh, And that includes national groups who turned us into the test bed to to legalize drugs. They are scurrying about like a box of mice somebody tipped over. Um, The ballot measure 110 money paid for the creation of a few beds of recovery. The facility just opened. It has no track record at all. But the proponents of ballot measure 110 are citing that as uh, prima facie evidence that 110 is working and we're going to offer restorative treatment to people in the vice grip of drugs. Well, we'll see. Um, they are scurrying at the national level. And I keep getting emails constantly saying, we need to create an environment where there's safer drugs and safer drug usage. Uh, that translated over into our uh, county commission, who thought at some point it would be a good idea to buy uh, tinfoil and and uh, glass pipes for smoking, um, either whatever the choice of drugs are to smoke in these glass pipes. Uh, the public was so enraged that public money would be spent for that purpose that that idea was very quickly dropped. It's done under the... the um, nomenclature of harm reduction. And so right after the tinfoil and the pipes were withdrawn from public consideration, the county came up with a how-to book to get drugs into a human body without having to inject them. And I will leave it to our good listeners to figure out what the, the possible points of entry might be. Enough said about that. Uh, and that got pretty much laughed out of the town square. But this is all done on the theory of, quote, harm reduction. Harm reduction is to get people into recovery, not have drugs so readily available, and get adequate treatment and detox facilities so that we can try to deal with the just epidemic of drug abuse and use and, and frankly, death. So can't you put a picture of some smashed out downtown Portland window next to a hypodermic needle, for instance. I mean, isn't that kind of the comparison we've got going here? We've got bad crime, we've got bad drugs, and you're helping maybe, what, 20 people, something like that? If, if even that many, because now how it works is that you can call a, a telephone number and ask for help. Uh, the proponents will say, we've engaged 60,000 people in seeking help. No, you answered 60,000 phone calls. I don't know that they've got one person that they could trot out and say, I was a mess with drugs. I called the number and I was cured and brought back into productive citizenship by virtue of ballot measure 110 money. But you wouldn't even need to have the broken out window with the hypodermic needle in front of it on the sidewalk. You could have the guy actually with the needle in his arm. I was driving home from a meeting in downtown Portland the other day, and there's a guy crapped out in a in a, um, a doorway entrance, actually shooting up. I was there at the light, and I watched him for a while, as long as the light took. I mean, it is grotesque downtown, and people that are clearly mentally ill or stoned, wandering around in and out of traffic, or the co-occurrence of both. 
some of these very powerful drugs exacerbating people's mental illness. And they're a danger to themselves. They're a danger to others. There is now mounting conversation about involuntary treatment if people will not voluntarily uh, seek treatment. And I would just end by saying, it's been my experience, people in the vice grip of drug addiction or mental illness are not always the best judges of what they need in terms of their own health care. So I think we finally reached a point where the problem is so bad that it's it's time to seriously uh, do something. And I believe that polling will support the fact that Oregonians have had it with ballot measure 110. Now the op- I mean the proponents of 110 will come out with their own polling that will contradict contradict everything that um, our group has um, has ascertained in terms of a pretty wide ranging poll of likely voters who overwhelmingly say 110 is broken and it needs to be fixed. Then the, the other interesting piece of this is how drugs are beginning to, to, to um, infiltrate our political life. I'll take our listeners back in time a little bit and talk about um, how the uh, drugs, and it's mostly cannabis, has now engulfed uh, a longtime member of the Oregon House, Paul Holvey. And the, the grocery uh, workers, this is a union, have targeted Holvey, who is a former uh, Carpenters labor representative and was known in Salem forever for his very labor-friendly politics. His choice as chair of the House Committee on Business and Labor to table a bill backed by the United Food and Commercial Workers Local 555 that would have cleared the way for cannabis workers to unionize enraged the union. And the union has now accused him of nixing the measure because of pressure from LaModa, which is this huge cannabis business that was a major donor to Democrat candidates, uh, that somehow Holvey was influenced by LaModa. In fairness to Paul Holvey, that's a charge that he rigorously denies. But um, Lamoda is now heavily involved, and, and their cannabis operations heavily involved with the disgraceful downfall of our former Secretary of State, who couldn't understand that having a side hustle involving a huge consulting contract with a dope company that she was auditing might pose a problem. It's also now touched Val Hoyle, who is a United States congresswoman, and being accused of taking cash contributions. There is some speculation that um, LaModa may feature in other Democratic um, uh, political races where they were accused of dragging in actual bags of cash. I mean, Oregon has very transparent um, uh, contribution rules, as you may uh, recall, and um, it, bringing bags of cash into somebody's office and leaving them off is a problem. And uh, I mean, I think that's a that's a felony. And um, and then we've got the uh, uh, Sam uh, uh, Bankman Freed scandal with the Democrats involved in a five hundred thousand dollar contribution to the state Democratic Party that has not been resolved. So, I mean, this sounds like a soap opera. We got drugs, we got sex, we got rock and roll. 
Um, and it's all this kind of witch's brew of stuff that uh, is around Oregon's very liberal policies about uh, drugs. Well, I know well, during I know. during COVID, uh, there was a ridiculous increase in the amount of people consuming alcohol and marijuana. The state must be awash in cash from that, one would think. And so would be the people providing it, not the alcohol so much, but the cannabis growers, certainly. So there's a lot of money floating around out there. Well, yes and no. Now, the legal cannabis growers are taking considerable umbrage at the fact that the illegal cannabis growers are not playing by the rules. And um, Oregon grows great dope and the black market is flourishing. Some of our Southern counties are having a terrible time with law enforcement and, and drug guys clashing. And so it remains to be um, a, a very serious problem. But yes, in answer to your question, there is a ton of money floating around everywhere. There's a ton of money floating around in dealing with homelessness. And a lot of that money has not made it to the streets to address homelessness. In fact, it's getting worse. And it's going to become more poignant and more acute as the weather starts to turn and it gets cold and rainy and people are out on the streets. You and I have talked about the fact that I have been trying to help one woman get off the streets. And it has been incredibly difficult. And I report to you and our listeners as I'm speaking that shamefully, I can't, I can't fix it. I've used all the tools in my toolbox to try to get her off the streets and I'm unsuccessful. She will sleep on the streets of Portland tonight. And I can't really ascertain whether it's mental illness or drugs or both. Um, I, I have had her in and out of facilities where she has bounced out. I got her identification. Um, I have provided for a phone, so she's got contact with the outside world. We've got her on waiting lists. If she doesn't like one facility, we've tried to get her to another facility. And um, it, it's, it, it is, I'm just dealing with one person, and it is an overwhelming problem that I have not been able to, to rectify. And I am hurt and embarrassed and mystified as to why I can't break through. I, I just, I can't do it. And she's going to sleep on the streets of Portland again tonight. So I'm kind of curious, why do you get so involved in such micro issues like that? Why do you think it's important to help just one person instead of trying to help a huge group? Well, I'm trying to do both as you and I've talked about, and it's an ongoing story and we can deal with it in more detail later because it's evolving so quickly. I don't actually uh, have a, have a, a finale for you. But um, my engagement with this woman started during my run for governor, and I had some young kids that worked on the campaign, and we would walk by doorways of people living in these doorways. Our office was downtown uh, on our way to a coffee shop at the end of the block. And so one day we were walking, and one of these young kids said to me, you've been in the business of fixing people's problems for two decades. Fix this. And so it was not long after that that I got the police to do a welfare check. I have never seen two kinder, more empathetic, caring officers, one a very young woman, one a retired naval veteran um, who worked in Navy bomb demolition. I joked with him afterwards that he picked exactly the right job to get him ready to come and be a Portland police officer. 
but they were so empathetic with her. And at the moment that they made contact with her on the street and I was standing right beside him, all of a sudden, this wasn't just a lump in a doorway. This was a woman who had a name. And I vowed that I could fix this. I, my office has a, or had a formidable reputation for fixing stuff. And I thought, how, how can this be that much difficult? We'll get her into a shelter and it'll all be fine. We'll get her some clothes and some food and ID. The ID was horrible to try to get. And the fights I had with the state of Washington, she was born in Washington. I mean, at one point I, I, tracked her down on the street, gotten her to originally wet sign the document. We couldn't be any kind of, it had to be her signature, sent it up to Washington with the required cashier's check and the, the copy of her ID didn't come and didn't come and didn't come. And so I called them and I said, where's the ID? And they said, you didn't send any ID to back up who she is. Well, of course I, of course I didn't, you morons. I'm trying to get ID from you. And Finally, we got it. I mean, I'd gone so far, I found out that she was baptized and I went so far as to try to convince the priest in the church where she was baptized to send a letter saying that a baptismal certificate was an official government document. I'm here to tell you, both the priest and I knew that was a moonshot and we lost that one. But the point I'm trying to make is just little stuff like getting ID. Um, getting her clothes, getting her uh, food, all the stupid rules that I've learned. For example, you can buy on um, on food stamps all of the elements for a ham sandwich. So you can buy bread, mayonnaise, lettuce, ham, cheese, um, all the elements for a ham sandwich. You cannot buy a prepared ham sandwich. And so if you're living on the street with no ID, no plate, no refrigerator, no nothing. Um, so I've been trying to, to get her set up so she's got adequate food. And it has it has been a real eye opener for me and how difficult this is. This is not an easy fix. And if anybody for a second believes that it is not going to take a solid plan with benchmarks that can be executed on and gobs and gobs of money to fix this. Um, they're living on another planet. This just isn't an Oregon issue. This is nationwide. Um, it's going on in every major city in the country and people are struggling with it and throwing money at it just doesn't seem to work very well. Well, and they're finally discovering throwing money at, uh, at all sorts of stuff doesn't work. If you calculate how much money we've spent in quote unquote salmon recovery, I mean, billions of dollars and salmon continue to decline into threatened or endangered species status. Um, I think so often political people have the attitude that we just throw enough money at something we can instantly fix it. And I'm here to tell you that doesn't work that way. I mean, look at some of this other stuff that we've just thrown money at. Uh, Project Turnkey. We're now discovering in uh, California that pioneered um, Project Turnkey that uh, Los Angeles um, didn't figure out how that was going to work. And landlords are now um, renting low cost housing to tourists. Uh, Project Turnkey, just to tell our listeners who might not know, this was public acquisition of um, generally um, neglected or declining physical condition hotels and motels, and then fixing them up so that they could 
serve as permanent habitation, putting in ADA elevators and kitchens and uh, ADA bathrooms uh, and turning them over to not for profits to run um, was going to have some problems. And based on what California experience uh, told us, I railed against Project Turnkey when I was on Ways and Means and it came through the legislature. And now, lo and behold, um, uh, it's not working as anticipated. And I promise you that many of the not-for-profits, the quote-unquote CBOs, community-based organizations, are going to come back to the legislature and are going to look to the general fund to make up the deficiencies in funding. And it's going to be like Pac-Man eating up the general fund because there just simply is not going to be enough money to, to do this. Um, so these were... Uh, hotels uh, converted into habitation for homeless people. And then when it didn't work uh, and the long-term residents um, uh, did not materialize, they're now turning them into short-term rentals again. You were extremely outspoken on this issue. And this was during COVID when this came up. And this was during the virtual committee meetings that you had, the legislature had. And there was such a rush to get this thing passed, and you were under incredible pressure at the time to vote for this. You said all the same things you just said to me and more uh, about how this wasn't going to work, and here we are. So, you know, what's, uh, what is going to happen with that, if anything? I would imagine that the California experience will probably metastasize up here into Oregon, and um uh, I'm guessing that there are going to be financial problems. There are going to be problems of how to just keep the facilities nice. I mean, there have been examples in New York of moving um, transient populations into downtown hotels as sort of intake facilities for people that are coming across the southern border. And in many cases, the physical plant is being destroyed. There are violations of the law in terms of just how the these residential, um, I don't want to call them residential hotels. They were, these were supposed to be the conversion of just hotel rooms into small basic rooms, sometimes with shared bathrooms. Um, and uh, they would house low income uh, workers, elderly, disabled, formerly homeless, who couldn't afford other apartments. And um, I, I just, I think this was an idea, again, poorly thought out. California spent a ton of money and Oregon is in the process of spending a ton of money. And um, I, I just, I, I just, I don't see this having a good end. But as the CBOs, the community-based organizations, come into the legislature to beg for ongoing operational support, uh, I think we'll be able to clearly see in Oregon why this hasn't or, or you know, conceivably has worked. Thanks for listening to What's Up with Betsy Johnson. If you have comments or questions about this podcast, please email questions, Q-U-E-S-T-I-O-N-S, at BetsyJohnson.com.